0: Would you like to introduce yourselves?
1: Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having us. Uh, My name is Lauren Eichler, and I am a PhD candidate at the University of Oregon. I'm currently working on my dissertation, which is on dehumanization and the metaphysics of genocide. I've also done um, a fair number of of work in uh, indigenous philosophy, continental philosophy, uh, American pragmatism, uh, and genocide studies.
2: Great, and uh, my name is David Baumeister. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at Seton Hill University in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. I recently completed a PhD at the University of Oregon, so in philosophy, and I specialize in environmental philosophy, uh, ethics, uh, and the, the uh, recent history of European philosophy.
0: So uh, the, the reason that uh, I'm speaking with you today is that I had found an article that you had both co-authored and uh before we get into the into the content into the and your ideas and reasons for writing the article how did you guys meet
1: yeah so we were both um graduate students at university of oregon and um i started a couple years after david did and so david was actually one of the first people i met when i visited campus and uh and he became a good friend of mine. And we also have a lot of similar interests, philosophically speaking, especially in regards to um, animal ethics and continental philosophy. And so a lot of our interests overlapped, and um, that kind of brought us together in terms of the work that we did for um, our article, Hunting for Justice. And so in that, we sort of brought together my kind of work on indigenous philosophy and his work on animal studies and especially um, some research he was doing on hunting, and we brought those uh, interest together in order to, you know, publish this article.
2: Yeah, and I should say that the the University of Oregon philosophy department is fairly uh, unusual or atypical amongst philosophy departments um, really in, in North America, just in the, the pluralism and the diversity of different perspectives that faculty and graduate students bring to the topic. So Lauren and I both have um, quite different backgrounds, but there's a lot of areas in which we overlap, and these are quite unique ones. So uh, we met as fellow students, and this was our first collaboration together, and I hope that we're able to produce more as well.
0: was this your first time collaborating?
1: Yes, it, that, it certainly was for me, um, and I thought the experience was really wonderful. But to me, uh, philosophy is a dialogic process, and it works best when you're having a discussion with other people but in the sort of publishing realm of philosophy, uh, it's usually encouraged to publish alone. And so I think, though, that working together really honed our ideas, and um, the collaborative effort was just it was a lot more fun and a lot less lonely than when you're usually writing by yourself.
2: Yes, yeah, it was. It was my first co-authored piece as well, and I enjoyed it on similar grounds.
0: What was the decision to co-author this paper, and where does the um, what, what's the genesis of your interest in this, in the, in the topic of, uh, it's the subtitle is of an indigenous critique of the North American model of wildlife conservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I could speak to that.
2: Uh, yeah, just that I think Lauren and I had been interested to, uh, produce something together for a while. And this piece is apart from both of our dissertation research. Um, and, uh, it, it was actually a call for papers from the journal environment and society which is, I suppose, a a social science journal focused on environmental issues. And this particular one was on uh, indigenous resistance and uh, decolonial critique. Uh, And we thought this was a great opportunity for us to come together and think about, uh, kind of devise a project that we could both contribute to and that we thought was something that hadn't yet been said and also that would fit within the aegis of this issue. So I I would definitely recommend uh, to yourself or to listeners to check out the other... uh, Pieces in that issue as well, which are very wide ranging. Ours is the only
0: piece that focuses on non-human animals in some way. How did you come to the the topic, um, other than the call for paper? Like how? Because um, was it your first? You had? Did you have general interest in this uh, in the area of um, wildlife management or indigenous politics in relation to land usage and uh, sovereignty?
1: Yeah, so there are a couple things. Um, one is that we're both interested in animal ethics and animal studies. And um, one of the things that me personally am interested in is a non-human agency. And what do we think of or who counts as a person? And what moral obligations do we have to non-human beings? And um, this connects to my dissertation research in that my work on dehumanization uh, also considers ways in which um, – humans are treated like animals, and in in relating or equating humans with animals, uh, this becomes an excuse for moral exclusion. And so I'm I'm puzzled by and uh, interested in investigating why becoming animal or being considered an animal uh, means that you don't have as much respect, or that you're not a person, or you don't have proposiveness. And so... I think that was one thing that really drew us to the topic of hunting in particular, um, and in our interest in uh, environmental issues. And so, when we were discussing what we wanted to talk about with the article, David had mentioned that you know he's been doing some research on hunting, and uh, we were like, okay, maybe there's an indigenous critique of hunting we could think about. And one of the things that really drew me to indigenous philosophy is the way that indigenous thought. Uh, treats animals and human relations very differently than uh, the the history of Western thought does. So in Western thought, animals are considered inferior. They're considered to be lacking in uh, intelligence, rationality, uh, emotional life, uh, purposiveness, a whole range of things. But from an indigenous perspective, uh, animals are persons, and they have their own lives and their own worlds and they interact with humans in meaningful ways, and as such, they have um, their own ethical obligations to humans and from humans. And so this kind of element uh, of animal relations we thought would be interesting to uh, bring to a discussion of hunting. And as we were exploring that topic, we started doing some research on the North American model of wildlife conservation and saw that this model, which purports to... Uh, conserve animal life and respect animal life is based very much on a view of animals as objects for human consumption. And this struck me as uh, very contradictory to an indigenous perspective. And also that this history of the, of the NAM uh, also is ignorant or ignores the history of uh, colonization uh, and the impact that treating animals in a particular way might have on indigenous communities.
2: Wonderful. And, and, and if I can speak a bit to my background with regards to this, uh, my most of the research I've produced has been in the history of philosophy, in particular of European philosophy, but looking at how uh, in the European intellectual history, uh, the relationship between humans and non-human animals has been constructed and how that uh, certain assumptions about that relationship have sort of become normalized or um uh, uh, kind of work their way into uh, political ideologies. Um, so I think hunting is a particularly interesting uh, topic to uh, look at with regards to that, for you see that uh, different hunting practices in, in different places around the globe reflect different histories of attitudes of the relationship of, of humans to other animals and also humans to their own animality. Uh, So this project, for me, was an excellent opportunity to think about how this, uh, you know, Euro-American intellectual history really comes to the fore and is reflected in public policy, in particular with the North American model of wildlife conservation that Lauren mentioned. And that's really the target of our our article. Uh, So I think, on the one hand, this seems like a very, a fairly recent phenomenon. It's the late 19th and early 20th century sort of invention, something that gets codified over the 20th century and then labeled today. But I think if, if you look at the phenomena of this model, you can see in it a whole uh, centuries and millennia long history of attitudes about humans and how they relate to, to non-human nature and to other animals that's lurking in the background there. Uh, so critiquing this on, from an indigenous perspective really shines a light on the sense in which this is a, it really is a Euro-American construct. Uh, and in that sense, it's it's exclusionary to other alternative views of how humans
0: ought to relate to non-human animals. I'm trying to think if it's a question for Lauren or if it's a question for... Oh, I'll ask a question for Lauren. Lauren, because um, you had mentioned before that, or it had been, or maybe before we started recording that, um, that, uh, indigenous philosophies or indigenous knowledge is perhaps, is, uh, perhaps what uh, you brought to the article. Is that fair to say? How did you get? How did you get interested in that? And and uh, how are you working with that, uh, both in this article and more broadly?
1: Yeah. Um, so I am not an indigenous person. I am a settler of European descent, living in the United States. Um, but I was first drawn to Indigenous philosophy when uh, Thomas Norton Smith, who's a Shawnee philosopher, uh, came to speak at uh, the Summer Institute for American Philosophy at the University of Oregon back in 2013. And I had been working on um, some papers on genocide for some of my classes and had been trying to think about how do we respect difference, uh, particularly difference between humans and animals, and had been already kind of working through this problem of dehumanization uh, as it occurs in genocide. And when I heard Thomas Norton Smith speak, he was giving a talk about his new book, Dance of Person in Place, and in this book, he had a section on non-human personhood and the different perspectives or worldviews that Indigenous peoples have uh, that contrast with uh, Western views of the world being uh, and nature in particular being static, passive, something to be acted on by a human that has agency in mind. And uh, his description of these worldviews just totally changed my approach to thinking about uh, different uh, non-human ethics and how to overcome issues of dehumanization. And that's what first really drew me into um, studying indigenous philosophy. And from there, um, I started doing much more kind of thorough readings of, you know, about colonial history and efforts to decolonize um, it, issues in uh, gender difference and so on. And so a lot of my work has been um, trying to incorporate Indigenous thought into uh, philosophy as a legitimate philosophy. Uh, I think philosophy traditionally as a discipline has a problem with looking outside of the Western canon and uh, acknowledging that other parts of the world and other peoples have legitimate uh, systems of knowledge and philosophies and metaphysics. And so part of my work has been to sort of take this seriously. Um, and as, that, as I try and do that, I also try and do so from the, maybe in a way of acknowledging that I'm a settler coming to um, a foreign philosophy and that you know I have to be aware of, of the boundaries of who I am and how I might uh, interact with this philosophy in a respectful way. And so some of my work uh, beyond hunting for justice has been on intersections between feminist and indigenous philosophy, where I sort of argue that uh, we need to take a bicultural approach. Women uh, need to take a bicultural approach if they're uh, committed to overcoming oppression. Um, and that we can learn from indigenous people about how to be bicultural. Um, And I draw on uh, the work of Ann Waters, um, who is a seminal philosopher, as well as uh, feminist philosophers like Valerie Plumwood and um, Andrea Nye. So that's sort of my approach or how I kind of came to uh, indigenous philosophy. But it also, uh, because like I said, of the way that um, indigenous philosophies approach uh, non-human relations, This has also been something that's really uh, been important to me in terms of thinking through issues of oppression between human groups as well, that I see that there's a lot of connections between how uh, human groups oppress one another and how human groups also oppress nature. And thinking through uh, indigenous ways of considering non-human personhood might give us uh, an alternative way of thinking about and even acting on or performing uh, other types of Relations, relationships with non-human others. Yeah, that would be my uh, my path into indigenous philosophy.
0: Interesting. And then, David, you had mentioned that you were uh, starting your uh, research into hunting. Uh, how did that come about, or is was is hunting a, a new topic that you're interested in pursuing?
2: Yeah. Well. Uh... In in my case, I first encountered hunting philosophically, I'd say maybe in reading Aristotle. Um, In in Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, in his politics, he uh, speaks about hunting in a very different way than you'd find it in contemporary texts, because uh, how he defines hunting is it's something that can be practiced upon uh, both other animals, in particular wild animals, and on human beings. So barbarians, for Aristotle, can be hunted. So hunting is almost a kind of a strange form of warfare. Uh, so hunting, I think, is a curious concept in uh, philosophical history, and it's, it's a topic that I've been interested in for some years, uh, but that I've sort of tabled while pursuing my dissertation research. My dissertation was all on the Enlightenment German philosopher. I mean, Lauren mentioned the sort of Eurocentric um, focus of philosophy, and, and in some senses, my background reflects that bias. My um, dissertation um, was all on this German Enlightenment figure, Immanuel Kant, uh, but I think it's very important from a contemporary perspective for us to look at these older figures and these older traditions and look at, and take a, a new critical perspective upon them. We're not gonna solve many of the environmental problems that we're faced with today, um, just many of the problems that uh, we encounter uh, globally in terms of oppression and inequality if we don't reevaluate the histories that have been in extremely influential and informative upon them. So um, I've, I've, hunting has been a topic that's been of interest to me for a while, and now I, I intend to sort of take it back up uh, as a, a subject now as a, a post-dissertation book project, uh, looking at the uh, philosophical history of hunting and how uh, that sort of concept evolved from Aristotle forward um, in ways that are, uh, I believe surprising.
0: Cool. Uh, that, <laughs> that, that sounds like quite a project.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And, uh, I, uh,
2: for, for me w- w- turning to the North American model in pr- particular, it, like I'd mentioned before, is just one way in which, uh, intellectual history is not just something dusty and antiquarian and, uh, and old and kind of just interesting for its own sake, but where you sort of, in looking at this history, you can see how it impacts practices today. Um, and, th- and this is where Lauren and I's interests and in our research projects really overlap is insofar as you can really see in North America um, at the sort of influx of European attitudes towards indigenous peoples and towards nature and non-human nature this, these, this sort of intellectual history coming to a head, um, encountering otherness, and dealing with that otherness in a particularly violent way, uh, so that today in the 21st century, if you, uh, you know, if you're interested to kind of understand the phenomena that we're faced with and to dismantle it, uh, it it's important to, I think, take both a contemporary and a historical perspective, um, so... Uh, and, and, you know, I could speak more about that, but I think that this is the sense in which, um, the, the article that Lauren and I wrote, I think is, uh, re- really is, is the type of piece that neither of us could have written a- alone, but that really reflects, uh, the intersection of a number of different problems and questions.
0: Which is a great segue. Cause I was going to ask, um, how did you guys work through, um, because you had mentioned that where the article is published, it's in a social science journal. So how did you work through being both philosophers, uh, writing a more social science based, uh, article and, or on a topic such as the, such as the NAM that, um, doesn't, doesn't have obvious, uh, let's say philosophical underpinnings in the sense, in the sense of a literary canon. It does. I mean, it, it, as you describe, it's clear where it's philosophical underpinnings, uh, uh, come from, but, um, it, when, you know, when people, particularly contemporary discussions of the Nam, come up, they're not, and I think this is one of the, uh, a, what your article makes an interesting contribution, it isn't actually placed in any philosophical context. It's done in a more of a, obviously, in a management sense and uh, and in a practical uh, deciding who gets how many tags are issued where and when, so to speak.
1: Okay, so I think you asked about was it uh, challenging for us to or was there a challenge at all in writing an article for a more like social sciences type of journal and in some ways no Uh, in other ways I think you know we were trying to be attentive to the fact that we need to have more applied or um, concrete as opposed to theoretical and abstract things to say so when we had first kind of thought about writing the article, we were thinking much more abstractly about you know, critiques of hunting or hunting practices or various environmental policies. But uh, the more we kind of did research, the more we're like, okay, well, we should really focus in on a particular thing, a particular um, issue that affects environmental ethics um, environmental conservation uh, in the United States and Canada today, and you know, actually apply philosophy to something that's going on in the world. And um, you mentioned also that you know the noun doesn't really strike you as something that is uh, inherently philosophical upon first glance, and the way that people talk about it or employ it isn't necessarily philosophical either. So I think that's one of the things about applied philosophy that's uh, really interesting is that pretty much everything is philosophical, but not everybody thinks philosophically about things. And so I think part of what we were trying to do with this article was to show that there are assumptions that people are making about the way the world is that underlie the history of the NAM and the policies that the NAM uh, suggests that people should use in order uh, to manage conservation. And that these assumptions, if they go unquestioned, uh, could lead to potential problems or lead to results that people aren't anticipating. Um, and that also, you know, people might blindly endorse a particular policy thinking, oh, well, look, they have this criteria. There's this great set of rules. Uh, Clearly, it's accomplishing something without really thinking about, okay, well, how is this uh, set of ideas implicated in a particular history or in a particular um, line of thinking? And this, when we investigate that line of thinking, we learn more about that policy and about that set of issues. And that's sort of what we were doing. It was more kind of like this... um, discovery work, this in-depth reading of a policy that um, has some popularity in the conservation conversation.
2: Yeah. And if if I could elaborate upon that, uh, so the the North American model of wildlife conservation, if folks aren't particularly familiar with it, uh, that language really only emerged in the last, in the, around 2000 or 2001 in, in a series of policy documents to kind of codify what this model is. You can think of it as sort of how wildlife conservation has evolved over the 20th century in North America, but specifically in the United States and Canada. Uh, And what really struck Lauren and I about this is that this model is really centered around the idea of wildlife as a natural resource to be managed uh, through governmental agencies, ostensibly with democratic aims to make wildlife resources available to all Um, And to uh, enshrine uh, hunting as uh, a a sort of democratic process that, um, through hunting wildlife in a in a considerate way, um, these natural resources can be conserved and preserved into perpetuity. Uh, So this model certainly has theoretical pillars upon which it's based uh, around you know the idea of a public trust, uh, the elimination of a market for game. the uh, intervention of law and government and regulation at all levels of um, the sort of hunting exchange. Uh, so for, for us, I think the central thing that struck us was this idea of natural resources. Um, and philosophically thinking, you know, that, that really just is, is striking the sense that to conceive of non-human animals not as living beings, but as resources that implies so much about what humans are, what nature is, and how we ought to relate to, uh, to these other beings, that I think that it, was, it became fairly obvious to us that there was something problematic about this model that really wasn't being exposed. Um, so it's true that the, the article is written for a broad inter- interdisciplinary audience. Um, it more, has more of a social science focus insofar as it's a critique of a particular policy And many of the examples that we give throughout the the article uh, are themselves uh, empirical, looking at uh, first-person experience and sort of declarations from from policy documents. But our critique is philosophical in nature. And so as far as we're trying to show uh, how there's a certain ideology or uh, certain intellectual commitments that are smuggled into this model. Uh, that I think that we we, we both agree are, are very problematic for various reasons.
1: Yeah, and I would also like to add um, that in terms of like the sort of ideological commitments that we were looking at in the NAM, um, this also includes David mentioned the public trust, and this concept of public trust is also part of the history of the NAM, which declares itself to be um, quintessentially American. And as we were looking at that, this we also found to be somewhat troubling considering the colonial history of the United States and Canada. Uh, and what exactly did they mean when they were saying that it's quintessentially American? Which Americans are being included uh, in this model? And um, when we also talk about public trust, who, is, um, who are we preserving and conserving for? So this question of who is, who is responsible for conservation and who receives the benefits of conservation was also really uh, at the forefront of our investigation into this uh, model. And that also kind of aligned with the question of resources uh, and wildlife as a resource. Because once again, if you don't think of uh, wildlife as um, agential or purposive or having its own agenda, uh, you might also think that they're being excluded, wildlife is being excluded uh, as a beneficiary or um, participants in this sort of conservation effort. Uh, in a kind of, you know, that that sounds strange because you think that conservation is, you know, for the benefit of wildlife. But um, really, ultimately, when you look at the at the NAM, it's for the benefit of humans. Humans get to determine the fate of wildlife uh, insofar as it's good for humans. And so, these were themes that uh, kind of stuck out to us as well when we were looking into this issue.
0: When you were doing the the research. Uh, did you come across any uh, any sort of material that was reflective uh, by the by the framers or the proponents of the Nam? And by reflective, I mean not just simply the policy documents or even kind of opinion pieces, but ref- where where there'd be kind of a, I guess, for the lack of a better phrase, a more obvious a more obvious um, signal to the philosophy that they were employing. And I just asked that as a interest, not as a, not necessarily as a suggestion as that, that would be like, you don't need, you clearly don't need to have someone say um, I was using a Euro American model philosophy to, to design this to, for that to be the case. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, I can actually read a quick passage from Theodore Roosevelt um, that I think speaks to that. Uh, So Teddy Roosevelt, you you know, the uh, early 20th century American president is seen as a conservationist, and, and indeed uh, in many ways he was, and uh, framers of the North American model point to him as an early sort of uh, hero of, of the movement. Um, you know, of course, Roosevelt founded a number of national parks and such, and he was himself a uh, avid big game hunter and defender of hunt- hunting, but from a particular perspective. So just in his 1893 book, The Wilderness Hunter, Roosevelt wrote, and I'll just quote this, because it speaks to uh, some of these themes that speak out to us or um, that, that stand out to us. So Roosevelt wrote, quote, the chase is among the best of all national pastimes. It cultivates that vigorous manliness for the lack of which in a nation, as in an individual, the possession of no other qualities can possibly atone, end quote. So, in Roosevelt, I think you see fairly directly this uh, intersection of nationalism and uh, you know manliness, this this uh, sense that hunting is a masculine activity and it's a quintessentially American activity um, that Americans should be doing that it instills national values um, and that it uh, promotes, uh, in particular, male virtues. Uh, so there, if you stop back and. Stop and, and kind of step back and, and think about well, you know, what is the historical context in which Roosevelt was writing? Uh, what is the political context with regards to the dispossession of of Indigenous peoples from uh, their lands? Uh, what sort of nation is it that's that's being instilled and defended here? Which sense of national identity? Um, and how is uh, the the type of hunting that is celebrated and enshrined in the North American model, framed, then I think it it, be, it becomes clear the sense in which there's background assumptions that uh, feed into this model and how it's framed. So, you know, Roosevelt doesn't take into account uh, different models of hunting and how, you know, hunting might play a role in, in uh, different uh, cultural systems and systems of belief in particular um, indigenous American uh, systems, where hunting is not necessarily a, a masculine activity, um, and it's not a, a, a national pastime. Uh, so uh, passages like this historically sort of reveal the the character of hunting uh, as it's constructed in its history. And there's a number of researchers who've uh, articulated this in much greater depth than we have, who we just Cite in the article, uh, pointing out the 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 way in which hunting in the United States, uh, and I, I suppose in in Canada as well. Though most of the research we've looked at focuses focuses on the United States, how the construction of hunting as a practice is bound up with practices of uh, American exceptionalism, nationalism, um, and masculinism, as well as racism. Um, it, it tends to be a, a sort of a white male hunter who, uh, a white male, uh, you know, sort of hunter of European ancestry who's had in mind with these defenses of, of hunting in this period.
0: Similar question then, um, specifically about the, the NAM. And in your research, did you come across or have you come across, um, maybe I should have investigated your citations more than I did. um, did you come across anything uh, perspectives or again reflections or suggestions that the NAM was um, also a, also a policy of disposition and of of, of asserting uh, colonial rule of the American government, particularly? Because I mean that's that to me that's unquestioned what it. If it wasn't if it wasn't done purposefully, that's what it did in effect, because it regulates the clearly regulates that relationship between who, who can hunt and when and where and how.
1: Let me, let me make sure I understand your question. So you're asking if um, we came across articles that are maybe straightforward about the fact that it's kind of promoting a particular ideology or view of masculinity or uh, American exceptionalism?
0: Uh, more, more in relation to like the the Nam, understanding Nam as a as a as a colonial uh, project as opposed to just a another colonial policy. Like and connecting it, it in some in some ways connecting it back to like uh, like Teddy Roosevelt because like like arguably the establishment of national parks is a way of it's a you know it's a it's a land grab because it creates ex- zones of exclusion.
2: Yeah. Well, I think one of Something that uh, was very exciting to us with writing this article is that we found that there are numerous critiques of the North American model out there. So figures like Nils Peterson, who I know you've had on the podcast, and Michael Nelson, who he's uh, Nils Peterson is co-authored with, and there's a host of others who' critiqued the North American model um, for for various reasons. but none of those critiques, at least as in the whole survey of the literature that we conducted, point to uh, make make this decolonial critique of of Nam or or argue that it is a colonial practice and therefore is problematic. Uh, so certainly, there's a lot of research out there looking at um, uh, uh, policies as they relate to non-human nature more generally, the founding of parks, and seeing these as colonial artifacts. But in the scholarly literature on the North American model, in particular. There, that critique really hadn't been made, uh, so that was one of the reasons I believe why we felt that we had something unique to say here, even though you know we, we're both very junior scholars. Uh, that this is a this is a point that really hasn't been made in the the scholarship in the scholarly literature yet.
1: Yeah, and to add to that, um, David brought up uh, Nils Peterson and Michael Nelson and they had some really interesting critiques of the NAM, which I think were pretty inspirational to us. You know, Peterson and Nelson uh, mentioned, you know, they did a critique of sort of the reliance on science, for example, um, and had mentioned uh, the uh, homogeneity of the hunter population in North America as being, you know, largely white and uh, trying to kind of Critique the NAM on, on the terms of being well. You know, okay, so it's catering to uh, hunters as um, essential to conservation efforts. But what about all the other people who care about conservation? Uh, what about like the bird watchers and uh, you know other people who are invested in conservation but aren't invested in hunting? Where do they fit in this type of model? And uh, the NAM really excludes those types of people. And so uh, Peterson and uh, Nelson brought that up in their article. But aside from this sort of, like, you know, brief touch on uh, the fact that hunting tends to be a very white, masculine endeavor, they don't really delve into some of those more decolonial issues uh, and the way in which there's a troubled history of um, history of conservation that the NAM draws on that excludes indigenous peoples in particular and indigenous ways of thinking about non-human nature.
0: So then when, and this is perhaps a, unfair question when you were writing it uh the, the article uh were you thinking about uh, i mean obviously it was submitted to a particular journal which will have a particular audience but did you envision uh who a or uh, i guess the easier way did you envision who you'd like to read this and who you would like to or who you'd like to hear the critique or again was it um or would it be fair to say it, it is it, and I mean, they're not mutually exclusive as well, or at all. But um, is it also more? Uh, the article is the culmination of you thinking through this and encountering uh, these critiques of the Nam, but that they're also then missing this decolonial aspect.
2: Yeah, I think for us, I mean, we're both coming at this article from the discipline of philosophy. Uh, that's that's our background, and and most research written in philosophy. Is read by very few people. Uh, that is, by you know, academic philosophers, which is a fairly small crowd. So I think we're sort of trained to think about our research oriented towards that audience. With this piece, this is really, I, and I think I can speak for both of us, something that was somewhat exploratory for us both. So we we're hopeful that this could speak uh, uh, both to uh, uh, people interested in conservation. in in the broad sense and in the North American model and its history and its advantages and disadvantages and to those uh, working in indigenous studies and indigenous issues in particular uh, and uh, sort of at the intersection of those two concerns. So this really wasn't a piece that was addressed to philosophers but was sort of sent out into the void hoping that there would be readers there. And I think we've been delighted by the reception that it's had and so in so far as we've received a uh, uh, pretty solid re- response from a number of readers who've i th- I think felt that the article has contributed something new
1: yeah and in, in addition to that, I think that the um, the primary audience at least the way I was thinking about it is people who don't know very much about um, decolonization and indigenous history and indigenous philosophies and so part of the effort in the article in doing this critique was also to inform people about other worldviews um, and how these other worldviews um, are affected by what seems like a, a, on the surface a beneficial and um, good intentioned conservation policy and that you know the histories that we have <clears throat> Mm, sorry, lost my train of thought for a second. Um, I'm gonna go back to what I was saying before. But so basically, uh, so I was, I think I was envisioning that the um, the audience would not be familiar with Indigenous thought, and that this was an opportunity to give um, Indigenous peoples a voice. And so part of the um, aim of the article or one of the, the techniques we use in the article is to just draw on a lot of indigenous scholars um, and let indigenous people speak through our article. Um, so we turned to a lot of indigenous philosophers, um, but including uh, Leanne Simpson, uh, Luther standing there who's a historical figure uh, as well as going on kind of contemporary issues um, and interviews that were done um, with uh, the Lakota or the Dene and Actually, have people be able to speak through the article um, and give their voices to this issue, um, and so that was part of I think for me part of the goal was not to let um, us you know be the kind of uh, overarching voice in the article, but to let native people speak through us.
0: Interesting. What what has the what other reception other than that uh, have you received for the? to the article? Has it been generally positive? <laughs> I hope.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've received a lot of requests for the article, um, you know, within like a week of its publication, we had, you know, half a dozen or more requests, which, um, was new for me when <laughs> publishing an article. Um, it's being, I've, I've heard that it's being taught in classrooms already. So, um, that's really exciting to hear. And, I mean, really, what I hope, you know, I hope people, um, you know, continue to search out maybe other work that David and I have done, but also that, more importantly, that people will go out and um, look up these Indigenous authors that we cite and want to learn more about Indigenous philosophies and Indigenous approaches to the world.
0: Have you, has it been mainly uh, academics who've reached out? Have uh, any uh, avowed hunters or proponents of the NAM reached out? and expressed any concerns? We haven't received any critical responses as far as I know.
2: Uh, But I think we'd be very open to dialogue uh, about this. I mean, the the literature on the North American model is quite large and sprawling, and we recognize that this is one contribution to that. Um, So we are We're we're hopeful that we've contributed something unique that, uh, you know, that can be taken up and that will be acknowledged.
1: And I think another important thing is that in the article, we don't condemn or, uh, yeah, we don't condemn hunting. We don't say, like, oh, this is a horrible practice, don't do this, even though we are kind of taking a critique that tries to rethink uh, the relationship between humans and animals. Um, but rather that there needs to be a more nuanced and complex view of hunting and conservation and the the relationship between those two things, especially as it relates to kind of the history in which it's embedded and how it affects um, marginalized and oppressed groups or historically marginalized and oppressed groups. So it's not as though we're saying, you know, oh, hunting, all hunters, cease your activities. Uh, It's more okay, we think, or there's been this argument that hunting is central to conservation efforts, um, but who gets to hunt? Where, when, uh, what are the policies and uh, the legislation surrounding that? And how does it affect different parties in different ways, particularly when hunting might have different goals? So in the NAM, hunting is, um, it's talked about as recreational. It's a form of entertainment and enjoyment, sportsmanship, but for other communities like indigenous communities, um, hunting is part of a way of life. Uh, it has to do with uh, rituals and histories and upholding traditions uh, about building community and about maintaining and establishing certain types of relationships with the non-human world. And these relationships have already been upset and put out of balance uh, due to colonization, due to the way that native people have been moved onto to uh, reservations, um, due to conflicts between Uh, federal sovereignty and indigenous sovereignty. And so these types of policies play into, or like the NAM, for instance, plays into this history without critically reflecting um, how uh, certain people have been disenfranchised and how uh, a sportsmanship or an entertainment approach to hunting uh, might not be amenable to other ways of hunting uh, and might actually be harmful to certain groups who think of hunting in different ways.
2: And I think if I can add something, that uh, showcases one sense, what what Lauren just just mentioned there, one sense in which what we've said, I think, is something new with regards to the the hunting literature that you'd find, say, in animal ethics or in philosophical approaches to hunting up until this point, which largely disregard indigenous perspectives. Uh, So there's a debate around hunting, whether it is cruel or not, Uh, Whether it's ethical or not, uh, uh, whether it should be permitted or not, uh, and this largely, uh, you know, it 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 largely hinges around questions of, you know, whether we should allow or permit non-human animals to suffer, whether we should take pleasure and or enjoyment in the the suffering of other animals, whether non-human animals have rights to live. Uh, some sort of intrinsic life to continue their existence and how hunting factors into that debate. So if you look at figures like Peter Singer or Tom Reagan or Gary Francione or a number of other sort of big names in in mainstream animal ethics in animal rights scholarship, many of them have commented upon hunting and would be critical of the North American model uh, insofar as it defends hunting but on very different grounds than we're arguing in the article. So in a sense, our article is also critical of these mainstream approaches to the ethics of hunting insofar as we're pointing out that in this debate overall, on both sides of the debate, hunting advocates and critics of hunting, the question of a a non-Western attitude towards hunting and of a different ontology of hunting that has has a quite different understanding of the relationship between the the hunter and the hunted animal uh, uh, that 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 perspective is really lost, and to bring that into the debate is something that ought to be done, and I think changes the terms of the
0: debate. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm glad that you have uh, done this <laughs> um, because it is one it's one of the things that I've in my limited research experience on the topic of hunting and with the people that I've talked to. um, I have run into consistent frustration with the, the kind of the, the very, I
1: don't
0: want to be too harsh, limited discussion at times that happens and that sometimes that critique is offered uh, or when critique is offered sincerely and uh, that it's not taken as such. That's why that's kind of what prompted my question about the reaction because I was just interested to hear if uh, how it had been received. Um, then, fo- uh, then moving on from that, where do you um, where do you envision going with this uh, research in the future, or do you have a future with this research?
1: <laughs> well, we concluded the uh, article with um, so we, we the article was mainly a critique. So are saying, okay, here are. Uh, let's take the seven principles of the NAM and let's uh, bring a decolonial and indigenous perspective to each of them. And we'll see that each of them in some way contributes to the erasure of indigenous views, indigenous sovereignty, so on and so forth. Um, But we ended the article by saying, okay, well, we need to incorporate more indigenous voices. We need to um, do something differently, but we didn't really give a path forward. So I think one thing that um, we might be interested in doing is actually thinking through that and seeing, okay, what would it look like to have a different model of conservation uh, that includes indigenous voices that is aware of the history of colonization in the Americas um, and that tries to incorporate other views as well as the views of non-hunters, right? Maybe there's a way of thinking about uh, wildlife conservation that isn't dependent on hunting, um, but that also maybe doesn't exclude hunting, right? So it's a a kind of balanced view that incorporates the views of different people from different communities uh, and who have different um, relationships to non-human animals and non-human nature.
2: Yeah, and if if I could comment on that, I I think Lauren's absolutely right that there's a lot of more work to be done in terms of bringing additional voices to the table. Around hunting and conservation practices more broadly. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, certainly Lauren and I uh, have in mind perhaps c- collaborating on future projects that develop this further. Uh, if I could speak a little bit more to uh, my own uh, personal project, which, you know, in, in philosophy, t- people tend to write uh, single authored works and single authored monographs, uh, although this uh, you know, and so this is one of the reasons why I find this collaboration with, with Lauren and my friendship with her so enriching is the opportunity to develop this really rich area in a co-authored way. Uh, but as I mentioned before, I, I often have uh, a, a book project in the works that looks at sort of the, the cultural and intellectual history of hunting more broadly. And I would see this critique of the North American model as one of the contemporary applications of that broader critique of the way in which hunting uh, really reflects uh, a very problematic model of the relationship between humans to non-human a- nature, even in areas where you wouldn't expect it. So I think that, for instance, how hunting uh, was framed in European intellectual history contributed to the way in which men think about their masculinity in a way that really contributes to sexual violence and predatory sexual behavior. It contributed, certainly in a, in a global colonial context, to the way in which European settlers thought about their entitlement to the land and, to, and how they might relate to indigenous peoples um, as either through exclusion or through hunting themselves. You can think about uh, practices like slavery, uh, genocide, and uh, you know, even the uh, sort of exploitation and exclusion of, of immigrant populations uh, through a lens that is inflected by hunting and the relationship that, uh, between the, the human hunter and the hunted non-human or less than human that has been built up over the centuries. So I think this is a very rich topic that has, you know, there's just sort of a, an, an indefinite amount, an amount amount that could be said in a number of different directions. Um, Lauren and I have the advantage of being right at the, the early stages of our careers. And I anticipate that this is something
0: that we'll continue to track over the years and maybe even decades ahead. Where does, where does your commitment to the philosophical understandings of relations between humans and non-humans and or environmental justice come like how did you, I guess the easiest way to ask the question, how did you become interested in this topic and then end up deciding to do a PhD and then as you said, David, perhaps doing this for decades?
1: I guess there's a couple things. Um, I mean my interest in environmental issues generally speaking, I, I guess you know since I was a child, uh, you know learning about recycling in elementary school, uh, has always, I've always thought, like, oh, okay, well, that's appropriate, and that's a responsible thing to do, right? We all live on this planet together, and we all have responsibilities to one another, and if we want our planet to survive, as well as all the things on it, uh, we should do what we can um, to make sure that happens. Um, and then, as I started to do uh, more work in graduate school, I became really interested in the concept of human nature, and what exactly is a human, and... In asking this question, well, what is a human being, and what are responsibilities we have to humans, and what are human rights, uh, inevitably leads you to the question of, well, what is the human being defined against? Um, we define humans by also saying what things are not human, and often this is the animal. Um, it's one of the sort of primary uh, opposites that's presented uh, against a human, and so what what makes humans different from animals. And as you start getting into that question, you start seeing, well, maybe it's not as clear as the history of philosophy has told us. Um, it might not be the fact or the case that animals don't have language or that animals don't have agency. Uh, maybe humans and animals are a lot more alike than we think. And yet this difference between humans and animals has been used over and over again as an excuse for oppression and dispossession and uh, for violence and for moral exclusion. And so this to me became like a really important issue in my work, because how can we make the claim that we should liberate certain humans from oppression when a lot of that oppression is uh, based on or excused by or understood in in, ter- in the terms of the oppression of nature? Uh, and so that's sort of like where kind of my um, my path to the topic came from, but I'm also interested in issues of democracy or politics of difference. And one of the things that was interesting to me about doing research on the NAM was that it also um, proclaims to be a democratic um, policy and that it um, it's interested in issues of public trust, of things for the people. But what is a democracy that, that excludes certain voices? Um, what does it mean to have a true democracy? And can we have a democracy if we aren't including the other types of beings that we live with? And how would we incorporate beings that don't speak our language or might not have languages we understand it um, or intention as we understand it that are so radically different from us that uh, communication is extremely difficult? Um, and are there ways to communicate so these are also really central questions for me um, in taking this, in this approach or in, in thinking about uh, human-animal relations um, is this sort of political aspect of our relationship to animals and nature.
2: And if, and if I can then speak to my own background with regards to that, I should mention that like Lauren, I am not someone of, an, of indigenous uh, descent. Um, you know, I have... Uh, you know, settler European heritage, and when I ha- studied philosophy prior to arriving at the University of Oregon, this was ensconced largely as a European phenomenon. Um, I think my own background is fairly typical in a, in terms of an undergraduate student in North America who uh, studies philosophy, gets interested in in that history, and isn't terribly critical about the, you know, the, the sort of geo, geopolitical questions around what it means to conceive a philosophy in largely European terms. So by the time I conceived of a PhD project, I was more and more suspicious of the Eurocentric assumptions that I had myself brought to, to the discipline of philosophy. And so wanted to, it felt quite intuitive for me to take up a, a perspective that was critical and to take up a theme that allowed me to uh, sort of investigate the cracks in that uh, European uh, mindset towards philosophy. And the question of the human's relationship to non-human nature and of the human-animal relation more narrowly struck me as maybe the most rich area to investigate that now. So partially, this is also fueled by a sense in which that the environmental crisis that we face globally with regards to anthropogenic climate change, with regards to the sixth great extinction, just all the hordes and hordes of non-human animals that are going extinct as we speak, um, that this is really a crisis that future generations will look back at the present moment and ask why we are not doing more. So I think there's a there's a really an ethical imperative for us to take environmental issues seriously, and also, uh, as you know, uh, settlers in North America more narrowly, to consider the ways in which we approach our lives and our interests and how those reflect colonial heritages. Uh, so my own research, how this project fits within it. Biographically, is to me this seems like the, the the type of work that hasn't been done enough, and that I would be very uh, f- uh, fortunate and to uh, to be able to do more in the future.
0: Well, I think I think that's a good place to uh, wrap up. Um, thank you for your patience with my questions and thinking through. Uh, thank you for writing the article. Uh, it would certainly. When it popped up in my Google News alert, I was quite uh, uh, quite interested to to read it because, as I had mentioned, and as you've mentioned, it it is a perspective that I, I hadn't I hadn't seen. Um, now I haven't c- conducted a thorough literature review; it's likely both of you have. But uh, um, it was it was quite exciting actually to to see uh, to see the title. So thank you for writing it. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting us and for your interest in the article. Um, And yeah, we we definitely hope to continue looking at this issue some more and certainly encourage other people to as well. Um, I think it's really important to, as, as David points out, consider the geopolitical context in which these types of conservation efforts are emerging. Um, and to not just only think about okay, well, what are our relationships to what are human relationships to non-human animals, but also, you know, how are human relationships, interhuman relationships, defined, constructed, um, and built around the development of these types of policies? And if we aren't paying attention to issues of colonization uh, and the history, we're kind of bound to repeat our mistakes. Um, and continue to participate in um, oppressive and potentially violent uh, policies and practices um, that ignore uh, knowledge and uh, wisdom that other communities have accrued over time. Uh, So I think it's really important that we especially pay attention to indigenous voices uh, and indigenous knowledges um, as we go into more and more serious environmental crises. (laughs)
2: Yeah, and, and I would just like to express my thanks both to you, Chris, uh, for inviting us, for your interest, and for all the work that you've done uh, with the, the, the Unsettled uh, Hunter podcast and generally, um, and I think it's quite an honor to uh, you know, be on this podcast and to join the other voices that you've gathered here, uh, and I also want to thank Lauren for working on this with me and, uh, and just for being such a wonderful collaborator.
1: Likewise.